The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on Twitter to join these conversations live and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion hosted by Michael Guyot. My name is Michael Guyot, publisher of the Lead Lag Report. Join me if they are Jared Dillian. Jared, for those who are not familiar with you and your work, quickly introduce yourself, your background, what have you done throughout your career, what are you doing currently? Yeah, thanks for having me on, Michael. It's been a while. It's been like nine months. So, yeah, I, I started my career on the option floor in San Francisco, and I worked at Lehman Brothers for seven years. I ran the ETF trading desk, started my newsletter, The Daily Dirt Nap, in 2008. I've been doing that for the last 15 years. It's gotten really big and wonderful, and that's sort of my main business. I've written four books. The latest one, No Worries, How to Live a Stress-Free Financial Life, is coming out in January. I also have a radio show, which a lot of people don't know about. I teach at the local university. I do a bunch of stuff. So, But the main thing is the Daily Dirt Nap, which everybody should sign up for. All right. So, so the title book that's coming out is No Worries, How to Live a Stress-Free Financial Life. And that's going to be coming out, looks like, in January of next year. I get the feeling a lot of people are going to be pretty nervous. Maybe entering next year, given the way stocks and bonds just continue to act volatile. So I want to get your kind of broad thoughts on what's happened the last four weeks. Now, I've been very loud, obviously, as I usually am on X, about treasuries seem to be the credit event and everything else is next. But I think like me, you've been waiting on treasuries to act as the diversifier as opposed to the correlated asset. So talk through what's gone on from your vantage point the last uh, three, four weeks here. Well. I think, you know, I'm, look, I've gotten this totally wrong. You know, I started getting bullish on treasuries about 70 basis points ago, and it's been painful. Not too painful for me because I've been in the front end of the curve. I've mostly been in twos, but it, you know, just, you know, being bullish on duration and squawking about it on Twitter and making noise, like it's embarrassing. So it, it's just sucks. I think what's going on is that, you know, bonds are not responding to economic data. Like we do get weak economic data, not the claims numbers, but we do get lots of weak data. And, you know, you you just see the bond market doesn't respond to it at all. And kind of what I'm thinking is, you know, this is a lot like 1994. People like to draw parallels all the time. But in 1994, you know, 10s backed up 200 basis points. And it was, you know, if you remember the history, it was a result of, you know, the prospect of Hillary Care and all this government spending and... You know, that what that prompted a quote from James Carville about he wanted to be reincarnated as the bond market so we could intimidate everyone. 
I mean, the bond market is intimidating the government right now into having serious discussions about debt and deficits, which we haven't had in 20 plus years. You know, so a lot of the political intrigue that you're seeing with McCarthy and Gates and stuff like that, like really what this is about is debt. And people are starting to figure out for the first time in a long time that government spending crowds out, government borrowing crowds out private borrowing. You know, like the government gets to borrow first. And if you're getting a mortgage, you're second in line and you get to borrow at a higher interest rate. It's this crowding out effect. You know, so we have 8% mortgages. And, you know, I think if people look around and they say, gosh, my mortgage is 8%, why? And it's because we're running $2 trillion deficits, then, you know, there's going to be political change. And I think we're I think we're at that point right now. I think people are starting to figure it out. Okay, so there's a lot to unpack on that. So I agree with the idea that bonds are not responding. I always go back to the nuance of, you know, which bonds, right? So you've got the yield curve now is very violently uninverting. Credit spreads are still very tight. And I think when people hear the word bonds, they're not distinguishing necessarily between, you know, the in quote pristine collateral, which is treasuries versus corporate credit. Of the two, which one do you think has it more right? Meaning, is the treasury side in the way that it's moving more right about the potential of recession next year or are credit spreads being that they're still relatively tight, suggesting default risk is not rising? Is that right? Well, I think credit spreads are abnormally tight. But, you know, I think here's how I think this plays out with credit. You know, I think spreads widen 300 basis points and treasury yields go down 300 basis points. So you had a 9% bond before and you have a 9% bond now. The difference is that it's mostly spread. So I don't I like so I don't think nominal yields really change a lot. Like I don't think this is going to be like 2002 or 2009, you know, when we had single B or double B credits that had like 14% yields. Like I I just don't. I don't think that's going to happen. Okay. So you've got the short end, the duration side. I'm with you. I've been embarrassed, yeah, you know, for the last year in that kind of Phoenix rising idea because the reality is treasuries have not acted as the flight to safety trade in that kind of high volatility sequence. Now the question becomes, if you have a belief that treasury yields are nearing their peak, yes, they can keep rising, but what have you yourself been doing? Meaning, you know, if you believe in a thesis, are you doubling down or you're buying more shorter duration treasuries or even longer duration? Or are you just saying, you know what, this is this is not something I want to necessarily try to time more with? So what's happening now is that the yield curve is steepening dramatically. It's steepening a lot. It's ripping steeper. A couple of weeks ago, it was minus 100. Now it's minus 30. It's going to it's gonna uninvert here pretty soon. We're going to have a positive yield curve. What's interesting is that it's been uh, a bear steepener, not a bull steepener. I, I expected that we'd have a bull steepener, but I think that's coming. Sorry, they're not to interrupt, but, but that, that's a term maybe some people have heard, but they don't quite understand what that means. I mean, just explain what a bear steepener is. Well, a bear steepener is when long-term yields go up faster than short-term yields, but they're all going up. Like it, it's a move lower in duration. So anyway, so the point is, is that usually when the yield curve steepens after a period of inversion, when the inversion happens, it's telling you that we are going to have a recession at some point in the future. When the uninversion happens, when the steepening happens, it means that we are having a recession now. Right. So we've seen 70 basis points of steepening. We are having a recession now. It's happening. 
And in response, the Fed is going to cut rates. You know, so you ask me where I'm positioned, what I'm doing. Like I basically have an, an, an enormous position in two-year notes and I'm waiting for, you know, over the course of six to 12 months, I'm waiting for 300 basis points of rate cuts, you know, and I view that as a pretty asymmetric bet because, you know, the Fed has communicated that they're mostly done hiking rates. We might have one more. I think it would take inflation or the economy to accelerate a lot in order for them to have more rate hikes above and beyond what they've already done. I don't think it's going to happen. You know, so I think you have limited downside and lots of upside. Some people hearing the idea that we're in a recession now, it sounds a little odd relative to unemployment. Although I always go back to, I never once believed we were in new bull market. Small caps are clearly, it's not telling you that. Micro caps, definitely not part of that too. A lot of the parts of the marketplace have been, you know, pretty abysmal performers. And all that is consistent with the idea that we're either near your recession or in one. Why is it you think that people are unable to just maybe entertain the possibility that we've all been fooled by the S&P and by the NASDAQ this year? Because everyone is just on that train that it's been this incredible melt up. And the reality is it really is true. It's largely been driven by just select number of stocks. Yeah, I mean, I you know, if you I think I saw the other day that if you take out the largest seven stocks out of the S&P 500, that the S&P 500 is actually down this year. It's actually down a small amount, down like 3% or something like that. So I think people are fooled at it. You know, like, by the way, the S&P 500 in the last couple of years has turned into kind of a crappy index. Like, it's not a good index. It's very top heavy. It's dominated by a few tech names. It's really the S&P has turned into the NASDAQ. It's become like the NASDAQ. Like, I think, you know, if you really want to use something as a benchmark for what the equity market is actually doing, you should look at the equal weight S&P, you know, which is about flat this year. Right. And after inflation is negative, which which is totally against the where we should be relative to other pre-election years. That's what I think is also myths. I've had Jeffrey Hirsch on these spaces before. I have a lot of respect for the work and very much myself believe in seasonality and you know, cyclical patterns. But nothing this year is played according to script. And I think a lot of that large cap dominance is because, let's face it, there's just automatic flows that are going into Vanguard market cap weighted products. You know, it's funny. I really didn't think too much about the G in GDP. Yeah, I mean, I wrote a, I was, you know, you mentioned the 10th man. I wrote a 10th man piece a couple of weeks ago talking about, you know, the push for shorter work weeks, you know, from 42, 40 hours to 32 hours how people are taking Friday afternoons off, how people are taking Friday off, how people are taking Monday off. And, you know, I I don't mean to get like all, you know, indignant about how people like have less work ethic or stuff like that. But just looking at this as an economist, you know, basically output is the product of hours worked times productivity times effort. And if people are working less hours, less hard, less productively, then we're going to have lower GDP. So I think, you know, I think trend GDP over the next 10 or 15 years is probably going to be flat to 1%. You know, if you throw in, if you throw in government spending, maybe that gets you a little higher. But, you know, I think we're going to come nowhere near the 3 to 4% GDP growth that we've had in the past. I mean, if you look at it on a static basis, then that's totally true. Like if you just take what's happening now, 
And this is what people do. They say, okay, this is what's happening now. And we're going to, we're going to extrapolate it 20 years in the future. And in 20 years, we're fucked. Like that's, people do that all the time. But that's looking at it very statically. And what I'm seeing, like I pay attention to social psychology. I pay attention to politics. And, you know, if you look at the 2020, 2016, 2012 pre- presidential campaigns, there was not one single candidate, Republican or Democrat, who campaigned on reducing the deficit or the debt. Like there was no compelling reason to because interest rates were so low and like the interest expense was $250 billion a year. We didn't have to worry about it. Now it's become a necessity. And I think people are going to start to make a connection between the interest rates they pay on their mortgage and the level of national debt. And I think you're going to start to see politicians campaign on this issue. And I think it's possible that we could have real progress on it as soon as 2024. You know, so I I just think you can't look at it on a static basis and say, you know, we're totally screwed. Like, this is the way it's going to be forever. Like, I mean, that might be true, but. We'll be back after a quick break. Hello, listeners. Michael Guyad here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the Lead Lag Report. And now, back to our discussion. You know, things change. I had put out a post basically screaming about you know, the death of MMT, right? Modern monetary theory, which goes to your point, Jared, about, you know, the kind of bond vigilantes are countering, you know, the government now. So the question becomes, you know, will the government at some point worry about austerity or start thinking about austerity? I hear you, you know, voters may start to make that connection, but I'm a little cynical. I think people like to get the candy no matter how bad it is for them in terms of who gets elected. I'm going to make the assumption that you think the Republicans will be more at the forefront of trying to stress the idea that we have to lower government spending. But the reality is they're going to keep <laughs> increasing spending anyway, because they'll just put it probably towards military and defense. What do you think would really shock, you know, the real powers that be to say, you know what, we really do have to do some austerity measures? Because let's face it, Europe tried to do that back in 2011, 2012. They were talking about it and nothing happened. Well, it would, you know... There is that Winston Churchill quote that says that Americans can be counted upon to do the right thing after exhausting all other possibilities, you know? So it would take a crisis. It would take a crisis. And we're not at a crisis point yet. Like right now, this is kind of a nuisance. It's an annoyance, the high interest rates, but it's not at a crisis yet. If we, if the bond market crashed and 10 shot up to 8%, then I think that would get people's attention. And Maybe that has to happen in order for change to happen. But I'm, I'm hopeful that it doesn't. Yeah, I guess it goes back to the earlier point about kind of which which bonds, right? I mean, treasuries are clearly in a crash, right? I, I would argue, right? It's The question is, does it morph into corporate credit risk blowing out, VIX spike, you know, stock market crash? I myself have am of the mindset that in order to, to save treasuries, you almost have to crash stocks, which I saw Barclays apparently said the same thing after I posted about it uh, on X, maybe coincidentally. But talk about the, what do you think people care more about? Do they care more about 
the speed with which interest rates are moving or do they care more about the speed with which their equity portion of their portfolio is moving? Because I get the sense that what would cause people to be worried about government debt is really stock, you know, because that's the headline. You know, it's funny you mentioned speed because speed is very important. Like a lot of people, a lot of people think strictly in terms of price and they don't think in terms of time. You know, if tens went from 4% to 4.7% in a year, that's not really a big deal. If it happens in a month, it's a big deal, right? So especially in interest rates, especially with bonds, like the faster interest rates move, the more calamitous it is. You know, I can tell you, I live in Myrtle Beach and, you know, there I have the only Bloomberg terminal in town. There's, you know, there's some financial people here. There's FAs and stuff like that. But I'm the only person with a Bloomberg terminal. And I talk to regular people all the time. And like you said, they're super focused on socks. And I think there's sort of a perception that things aren't that bad, you know, in places like Myrtle Beach because, hey, you know, my target date retirement fund is down 8% and it's I'm really not that far off the high watermark. So things aren't that bad. I think that perception exists. Yeah, and presumably that, that would, has all kinds of other implications just on housing as well. I mean, there is a theory out there which I think makes sense that one of the reasons that housing has been, you know, they've stayed relatively resilient is because there's this sort of halo effect, the wealth effect from stock portfolios and that just keeps people you know, optimistic and buying homes irrespective of you know mortgage rates. Yeah, the housing market here is very hot. It's extremely hot. You know, we have very favorable demographics. Even if it slowed down in the rest of the country, it wouldn't slow down here. We have tens of thousands of people moving here every year. So, you know, what my perspective on housing is probably a little bit distorted, but it is very hot here. Do you think about international markets and way the ways that China or Japan might be impacting rates here. I mean, it, it seems like that's also sort of an interesting dynamic. I'm sure you've seen a lot of the same data as I have, you know, treasury holdings by China. You know, I think that's the lowest level in in decades. And who knows if Japan ends up having to do something with the yen intervening. But do, do you think that's sort of another variable that makes things like wildly complicated for where to position? Well, I mean, it's, you know, we've seen the charts of China selling, you know, they've sold, if you believe the charts, you, they've sold about 400 billion worth of treasury so far. So if you figure they're selling about three or 4 billion a day, I mean, that's pretty substantial pressure on the bond market. I think Japan has sold a little bit. I kind of wonder about the motivation for continuing to sell bonds when the 30 year is already down 50% from the highs. Like if they were going to sell, they should have sold four years ago. Like, so I kind of wonder, you know, is China going to sell the rest of their bonds? Like I'm a little bit doubtful of that, but anyway. Yeah, it's just another topic. In fact, the other way to look at that is, well, that's, you know, that's the time that they probably load up when they realize they probably oversold at the wrong time. So, you know, it goes both ways. I think people always assume that the trend will continue rather than saying maybe that's the point where things reverse is when, it looks like it's most entrenched, that, that selling behavior. What about the, on the government revenue side? So, you know, tax receipts presumably are going to keep on dropping and maybe faster than the government itself thinks. I always go back to Greenspan in the age of turbulence uh, in his book in referencing the tech bubble, noted that the government underestimated the drop off of tax receipts as the tech wreck was taking place from 2000 to 2002, which exacerbated the fiscal uh, deterioration. Any thoughts on just sort of, you know, tax revenue? Because that's going to be another whole dynamic that throws off 
you know, how bonds respond to this ongoing spending, which again, is not stopping yet. Well, we have a very pro-cyclical tax regime. So 42% of taxes are paid by the top 1%. And the vast majority of that comes from capital gains and interest and dividends. So naturally, when the capital markets fall, you have a corresponding fall in tax receipts. I What I've seen is that income tax receipts are down about 8% year over year. Corporate tax receipts are down about 2%. Yeah, I mean, capital gains are an engine of revenue for the government. And, you know, the, the U.S. equity markets are have been below the high watermark for 22 months. You know, so a, a lot of those, a lot of the capital gains have disappeared. I think that's what's, that's a whole other part of this, which makes the dynamic really fascinating. Now, I, I guess the question becomes, would the government then try to re-stimulate, which is usually just by lowering taxes? That would be the Republican platform, presumably. Or do the opposite, in which case, you know, credits for it to widen. I, I put out that idea before. It's like, you know, at the end of the day, they have to save themselves first and they save themselves first by taxing more, right? Taking it from the citizens. That's why typically in recessions, you know, there is that fight to safety trade and treasuries. Um, what's the appetite on the government side, you think, for either hiking taxes or lowering taxes? Because both now at this juncture seem to be really dangerous propositions. We'll be back after a quick break. Foodies unite with How You Dish. It's social media with a secret sauce. Food, the world's first network for food enthusiasts. How You Dish connects foodies across the world. Share kitchen tips and recipe hacks. Discover hidden gem food joints and street food. Find foodies like you. Connect, chat, and organize meetups. How You Dish makes it simple to connect through food anywhere in the world. So... How do you dish? Download How You Dish on the Apple App Store now. Well, I mean, if you go back and look at a history of tax rates all back all the way back to 1914, you know, we had a, a regime of very high marginal rates in the 30s, 40s and 50s and 60s and also 70s, where you had marginal rates of 90 percent, 80 percent, 70 percent. And, you know, we've actually had some stability in marginal rates in the last 30 or 40 years. You know, Reagan in 1986 cut them to 28%. They went up to 31%, 39.6, down to 35. Now they're at 37. So I don't think there is, I haven't heard anything really from either side about wanting to raise or lower taxes dramatically. I think if there's any changes in marginal rates they will be around the margin. And the other thing is, is that, you know, there's this argument that it doesn't really matter how much you tax because the government is going to pretty much take the same tax percentage of GDP as they always do, which is about 20%. You know, it varies from president to president, year to year. It was a little higher under Obama. But generally, the government gets about 20% of GDP in taxes. And that doesn't change no matter what you do with marginal rates. So. I think even if, you know, you had a Democratic president and a Democratic Congress and they took a marginal rate of 45 percent for incomes two million and up, I don't really think that changes anything in terms of raising revenue. So you mentioned that you had you know, been part of Lehman Brothers. I wonder if we might may see another banking crisis, although not to the same extent as 2007, 2008. But yeah, the Treasury sellout does have all kinds of ramifications on the large banks. I look at the stock of Schwab, that definitely does not look like a new bull market. It actually looks pretty concerning, I would argue. 
where would you peg the possibility of sort of another, maybe not a GFC, but, you know, a mini version of something where, again, it's a financial crisis, you know, in terms of the private sector, in terms of the bank lending side? You know, honestly, I'm kind of shocked it hasn't happened already. You know, a lot of people after Silicon Valley Bank failed, a lot of people were expecting contagion. And I didn't expect contagion at the time, but I figured if rates continued to go up, you'd see more bank failures and you're really not. And I'm stumped. I really don't have an answer for that. Like I can, you know, I know a couple of community bankers and they tell me that they're watching net interest margin on a daily basis and it's very concerning. I know every banker in the country is watching net interest margin and it's a big concern. Like I said, I'm surprised there haven't been any more problems. And I think we will have problems, but I just can't predict when. Yeah, I always say path matters more than prediction, right? We can always pontificate about what happens in the next several years, but how you get there, the dance in between is everything. Everybody, just so I can reset the room, everybody, please make sure you follow Jared here on X and check out his Substack as well. Then if you want to come up and ask questions, click that bottom left mic request button. And as always, this will be in podcast under Lead Lag Live. Aside from the treasury position and aside from avoidance of financials, what are you doing just with your own portfolio? Are you mainly in cash sitting in short duration? Are you playing with some individual stocks that might be bombed out? Because the reality is there are a lot of stocks that now that actually do look undervalued, independent of the macro backdrop. I got to tell you, I have no interest in stocks here. My portfolio is gold, twos, and cash pretty much at this point with a little bit in Argentina, but that's about it. I didn't have to explain the Argentina. <laughs> I, I, wrote, I wrote about that recently, but Argentina's actually, let's talk about that. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, there is an election coming up later this month. Malay is probably going to win. He is the uh, libertarian candidate. He has promised to dollarize the economy. I think even if he doesn't win, they pretty much have to dollarize anyway. They're out of reserves and, the, it, the, you know, the peso is a mess and they kind of have to do it. Dollarization worked really well in Ecuador. After they dollarized, they had like 12% GDP growth for years. And it would be a huge positive for Argentina. The stocks have been, they're off about 20 or 30% from the highs. I'm a little puzzled as to why. I think people are worried about this. Obviously, it's a big change. But I mean, I think the status quo is worse. So yeah, I'm bullish. Yeah, there's an ETF, ARGT. I don't own it myself. I've written about it on Seeking Alpha, but... Yeah, the last two weeks have been pretty nasty, but uh, actually overall performed really quite well since since the COVID lows of 2020. Yeah, I'm not a I'm not a huge fan of ARGT because it's about 45 percent concentrated in one stock, Mercado Libre. I think if you want to get exposure to Argentina, there's 18 different ADRs. You have YPF, the oil company. I own that. You have a bunch of banks. I think it's better to get exposure that way. Yeah, I will say as much as I, I'm myself a fan of ETFs, I think one of the interesting dynamics of the ETFization, if that's a word, of everything is that, yes, it increases co-movement of different parts of the marketplace, but also results in companies which are not part of most ETFs you know, getting underlooked, and that makes for a better longer-term case. So I'm with you on that. It's better to kind of do some individual stock picking with you know, situations like Argentina or anything that's more kind of on the fringe. Let's talk about just briefly your history of writing books, because <laughs> it is not easy to write a book. I always have a lot of respect for those that do it. You know, my father wrote two books. I've never written a book. I'd love to. I just can't find the time myself. And I think it takes a certain kind of mind to really have the structure and do that. So this new book that's coming out, first of all, just lay out why you wanted to write it. 
And are you really that calm when it comes to finances? I mean, look, like, you know, I really wish I could quit my job and and just put my money in the awesome portfolio and forget about it. I think that would make me more calm. But look, the reason I wrote the book is I think a lot of the personal finance advice that is being given these days is garbage. This obsessive focus on expenses, like buying coffee and stuff like that, putting money in envelopes. What all this does is most of the personal finance literature out there is about getting the most money, right? But getting the most money doesn't necessarily make you happy. And a lot of times it increases your stress and you're thinking about money all the time. And the goal is to get to a place where you're not thinking about money, where you never think about it. That's really the ideal state. So that's what the book is about. The first part of the book talks about attitudes towards money. And then I get into the two sources of financial stress, which are debt and risk. And I talk about all the different kinds of debt and I talk about the different kinds of risk. And yeah, I mean, it's literally, it's going to be a revolutionary book. Hopefully it sells 10 million copies. We'll see. But I'm super excited about it. Yeah. And actually speaking about debt and risk, I mean, it, it seems like the risk for most people is to not increase their debt because the reality is they have to keep on financing, you know, just basic things. I mean, you've seen probably the same videos I have on, you know, inflation's understated when it comes to food, for example. I joked earlier today about, you know, Applebee's being $60 a meal, getting a lot of viral play and all that ultimately goes on to credit cards. And, you know, it's, I hear you got to be stress-free and not worry about debt, but the reality is a lot of people just don't, from a starting point perspective, have the luxury to think that way. So how would you tell people to frame, you know, their own happiness relative to maybe just some harsh realities in terms of what they can do with their money or lack thereof? Yeah. I mean, when it comes to debt, here's, let, let me just give you a, a sort of an example. And this was a question I was getting years ago. You have a mortgage at 4% and you have cash. Should you pay down your mortgage or should you invest in the stock market and try to make 8%? That's the problem that everybody faced a couple of years ago, right? So if you talk to somebody who works on Wall Street, they're like, it's stupid to pay down your mortgage. Like, it doesn't make, it doesn't make any sense. You can get 8% in the stock market. Why would you ever pay down your mortgage? Well, the reason you do it is to minimize your stress. You know, the last mortgage I had, I paid off in three and a half years. And I did that. It was a three and three quarter percent more mortgage. It was in a zero interest rate environment. And I said, I want to pay it down because I don't want a payment. I want to own the house free and clear. I want that security and peace of mind. And it made me happier, right? So it's a decision theory problem. It's about, you know, taking a certain 4% versus an uncertain 8%. And, you know, how you answer that question depends on your risk tolerance. But what I'm saying is that if you want to minimize your financial stress, you pay down your debt. Yeah. And people probably think it more in those terms when markets are going down, right? Because the reality is the allure is there, right? To your point, hey, I can make more money to want to get the spread because it seems like, you know, if I go in stocks or cryptocurrencies or it's a guaranteed rate of return, look at these long-term studies. And the reality is it's never quite that way. It's like, you know, the best investment is to pay off the guaranteed rate of return, which is essentially that rate that you have to pay. What about on the... um on the credit card side, so I'm looking at the description on Amazon. I encourage everybody to go to Amazon and pre-order. No worries, how to live a stress-free financial life. I will as well. 
one of the uh, one of the teasers there, Jared reveals, and there's several bullet points, the most effective ways to use credit cards that no one tells you about. Now, in seeing that, my mind goes to get scissors out. Okay, but what is that referring to when it comes to using credit cards the right way? Well, uh, you know, like I said, a lot of the existing advice talks about not using them at all, right? Like cutting them up and going off the grid and just using cash, which isn't realistic for a lot of people because it's kind of hard to rent a car without a credit card. It's kind of hard to get a hotel room without a credit card. Like you can't really participate in civilized society unless you have a credit card. And a credit card is a really bad way to borrow money, but it's a really great, convenient way to pay for stuff, right? So, I mean, the simple solution is just don't ever carry a balance, right? And keep track of it. And this isn't really like a financial question. This is more a character question. It's about not being a slob. It's about keeping track of how much money you're spending so that you can pay it off every month. One of the things I talk about in the book is the points. You know, if you've ever been watching TV and you see a commercial for Capital One or something like that, all they're advertising is the points. You can get single points, double points, triple points, 5%. You know, they market the cards on the basis of the points, which is great. But have you ever seen a credit card market itself on the basis of a lower interest rate? Have you ever seen a credit card commercial saying that we have the lowest interest rates? They don't do that. Like it costs them very little to market the points. People get the points and then they never use the points. So it's just, it's flypaper for idiots. And, you know, I just try to teach people how to avoid those pitfalls. Yeah, I mean, presumably they're not, they're not promoting that it's the lowest credit card interest rate because the lowest credit card interest rate is still like 20 some odd percent, right? I mean, <laughs> you know, it's like most people are not even aware of that side of things. And then of course, the other one major loan, which you know, is getting more and more uh, attention, right, is student loans. Now, maybe that's got a different nuance to it because that's tied to career prospects and kind of where you are in terms of life stage. But how do you think about student loans when it comes to what the popular narrative gets right or wrong as far as how to approach paying that off? Well, you know, it's funny. I'm I'm teaching, I'm actually teaching a personal finance class at Coastal Carolina University right now. And, you know, we've talked about student loans in class. And, you know, I have freshmen. These are 18-year-old kids. And pretty much all of them are getting loans. And I'm like, these are the most dangerous loans that you can possibly have. I said, you cannot get rid of them in bankruptcy. Like you have them forever. They're negative amortization. You know, and I have this story. It was, this is the last class. I told this story. I have a friend who was working with homeless people in New York City. And he was working with this homeless guy who was a drug addict. And he had been homeless for 17 years. And he got sober and he got a job. He got a job at McDonald's. He was making 10 bucks an hour. And within four days of getting the job, two guys in suits showed up at McDonald's looking for his student loans. True story. Like, they never go away. You can't get rid of them. And they're very dangerous. I think the bigger question there is maybe not sort of how to think about student loans, but how to think about just, you know, college education, right? Because it's a lot of negative ROI for getting a degree in this environment compared to you know, decades ago. Yeah, I mean, it, a lot of it depends on what kind of degree you're getting. But what we've seen in the last couple of years is an inversion of, you know, blue collar salaries versus white collar salaries. I mean, you saw recently that UPS workers negotiated a $160,000 a year package. The UAW is trying to negotiate a $150,000 a year package. I went to a beer distributor in Wisconsin 
And they told me that they were hiring college graduates to do sales for 55000 a year. And they were hiring high school dropouts to drive trucks for 110000 a year. So what we have is an oversupply of people with college degrees and an undersupply of people without. We're simply, we're, too many people are going to college. That's the problem. We just don't need that many people going to college. It's just hard to get people to, to think about that properly, right? Because it, it just seems like that's the progression, right? Is you go to, you get your high school degree, they go to college, and then, you know, life is good. And, you know, there's maybe just some generational differences you know, also. But I don't see how that, that stru- almost structural mismatch gets resolved without a few decades of, of a new generation to think differently. I think it's happening. I saw a poll recently. I'm going to get the details all wrong, but it, it was like, you know, the percentage of people who think that college is a good idea or a good investment has gone from like 70% to 49% in the span of a couple of years. So it's happening. Yeah, it, it, it's definitely an interesting longer term structural dynamic. Since you had mentioned the blue collar side, and obviously there's a lot of strikes and negotiations, things that are in the headline, which I'm seeing on the periphery. I'm not really tracking that closely. But I wonder, do you think we're in a new age for labor fighting back and and demanding higher wages? Because that's going to further complicate the longer term inflation story, barring some kind of massive recession that removes the bargaining power of workers. Yeah, I mean, it's inflation is a self-reinforcing process, right? So prices go up, Workers demand higher wages in response, and in response, prices go up, which causes workers to demand higher wages. I mean, this is the wage price spiral that we were talking about in the 70s, like it's happening. So how you break that is you would have to raise interest rates a lot and have a hurricane of a recession, which nobody seems to have the appetite to do right now. So, you know, there's been... There's been some people, I mean, even Larry Summers, like was sending around this chart on Twitter about a month ago of inflation in the 70s and how inflation got up to like 5% in 1969. Then it got up to like eight or 9% in 1974. Then it got up to 14% in 1979. Like you had multiple waves of inflation. You can kind of see that dynamic playing out right now. Like I, you know, I'm sort of bearish on inflation right now at the moment, but for sure, I think we're going to get, a, get another wave of it at some point in the future because that inflationary psychology has taken hold. Yeah, actually, I've got Tavi Costa tomorrow in a space. I think that's one of his main arguments is this, you know, three waves to inflation. So that makes the entire dynamic really complicated. And I'd argue that maybe exactly why you need to have a credit event to prevent that, right? A credit event on the corporate side would be a deflationary shock. It's like, how do you go back to 2% long-run inflation? You know, especially if you have these kind of waves that might be coming back with inflation, you have to really kill it. To kill it, you have to have something structurally pretty deep economically, I would think. Yeah, I agree. So it doesn't sound like to me that you think necessarily the whole soft landing depth argument is it's worth sort of exploring because aside from the fact that nobody knows, it can play out in so many different ways that it's hard to sort of position based on you know, the idea of a recession coming next year and how deep it it could get. Yeah, I mean, I do think we're going to get a recession. I think, like I said, the uninversion of the yield curve is happening as we speak. So I think we're going to get a recession. I don't, you know, the funny thing is that we really haven't had a recession since 2008. Uh, A lot of people, you know, it's been so long that people associate recessions with what happened in 2008. 2008 was an aberration. 
Stock market was down 57% from the highs. We had deflation. I mean, the economy was a shambles. You can have a plain vanilla garden variety recession without going into a depression. Like, and that's what I think we're going to get. Yeah, no, I think that's well stated. I, I also wonder if, and maybe people are going to brand me as being a permer bearer, but I, do you think there's a possibility that we're maybe in the midst of a, a bit of a lost decade? Now, I know that sounds scary, but I keep going back to it's happened with emerging markets. It's happened with Europe. It's happened with bonds, right? I mean, basically, we've gone through a lost decade of returns in three major parts of the investment landscape. It's happened with commodities. It's happened with gold. Small caps are at the you know, three-year level, and maybe they're in a lost decade, too, relative to the S&P. I know we all want to be optimistic on the United States, but lost decades are pretty common, actually, when you look at long cycles. Where, where do you think the possibility is there that we're just going to meander from an equity perspective for a while. I think the I think that's definitely going to happen. I 100% agree with that. And I don't think saying that makes you a perma bear. You know, it's happened before. Is it? So it happened from 1929 to 1945. We had zero returns. Happened from 1969 to 1982. We had zero returns. It happened from 2000 to 2011. We had zero returns. Like you get these pe- these periods of in, his- in history where you have zero returns in the stock market and valuations compress. And at the end of that period, stocks are compelling value and you get a new bull market, you know, but, and it's not to say there's not going to be opportunities. Like, you know, even in a flat market, there's lots of opportunities to trade. There's a lot of things to do, but, you know, for somebody who has all their money in the S&P 500 index fund, it's going to be disappointing. Yeah. And that's actually where it gets to be even more interesting, I think, right? Because you know, a lot of that S&P type money goes back to the earlier conversations, that structural bid. A lot of that's in 401ks, which means, you know, as I jokingly said, breaking, you know, pensions, right? That will be the implication. Aside from the duration, you know, sell off, you know, lost decade makes it hard for the pension accounts to grow, which becomes, I think, really problematic down the line, given just the aging population. Jared, for those who want to track more of your work, obviously you're here on X, you mentioned the Substack side, maybe if you can mention that link, but, you know, where do people find in general more of, of you? I think a lot of people are just, you know, I've talked to a lot of people, a lot of people are big fans of you and the way that you frame things and think about things. Where do you point to for newbies? Sure. So if you want to read my non-financial stuff, uh, which is essays about life and meaning and stuff like that. You can find me at We're Gonna Get Those Bastards on Substack. If you want to subscribe to the Daily Dirt Nap, just go to dailydirtnap.com, click the subscribe button, an email will pop up. Send me an email, mention the spaces, and I will give you a discount. And if you want to buy the book, go to Amazon, look for Jared Dillion, no worries, it'll come up and pre-order the book. It's coming out in January. Final thing, since you had mentioned it, you called it the awesome portfolio. Just, I'm curious about that. Explain that to the audience. I literally have like 60 seconds left, but it's 20% stocks, bonds, cash, gold, and real estate. I'll tell you what, Michael, have me on uh, another time and we'll spend like the whole time talking about this. This is the key right here. Jared's got the awesome portfolio. I've got the exquisite portfolio and, we'll, <laughs> double, and all of us are still fucked. I'm ready. Please make sure you follow Jared on X. And as always, Jared, I appreciate you, your knowledge and everything you contribute. Thanks, Michael. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. 
A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at LeadLag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the LeadLag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.